Well, you can open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 15. And we're going to be reading together the last part of chapter 15. And we're going to be reading some of what you probably have of chapter 16 in your Bible. I'm not going to get into all the details today, but there is quite a bit of controversy over where does the gospel of Mark actually end. And I'll say this so that you're not confused. You probably have a footnote or a bracket of some kind, depending on what translation you use, that tells you the best and the earliest manuscripts in Greek that they have found do not contain verses 9 through 20. It stops at verse 8. One of the reasons that some copyists probably felt the need to add an additional ending is because verse 8 ends so abruptly. It seems crazy. But I'm going to explain to you why I believe that's the actual ending. So... To put aside any confusion or distractions, I believe Mark's gospel ends at chapter 16, verse 8. So you can can look with me together. Do we have it up here too? Very good. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 40, and we'll read through verse 8 of chapter 16. You can follow along here. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he, that is Jesus, was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Verse 42. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. And now chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went out to the tomb. Verse 3. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Verse 6. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The end. (laughs) Sounds kind of a crazy way to end a gospel, doesn't it? Well, you're going to see why in a minute. Well, listen, guys, you know how this works. I've got three points to make today. 
Um, there's 20 that could be made, and I'm going to leave that to you. You can dig and explore as deeply and as, as far as you want to go to mine up all the gold and the gems in this passage. We only have time for three. Uh, but the way I want to shape these points is around the theme of doubt, because I think Mark is really tackling that in, these, in his ending of the gospel. He knows that as human beings, doubt is part of our core existence, right? How many of you remember Rene Descartes' um, theme or motto for the Enlightenment period? Anybody remember what it was? I think, therefore, what? Do you know that's wrong, though? See how history's revised itself, and you bought it. You know what the, you know what the theme actually was in the Enlightenment? I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. So if you could shorten it, it is, I doubt, therefore I am. In other words, he's saying doubting is a very central part of being a human being. We doubt. Well, I will say to you, it wasn't always that way. Sin brought a whole bunch of skepticism and cynicism into this world. And it started in the garden. Did God really say this? So... Mark is going to tackle our doubt. He understands it. And here is uh, some good news at the very beginning. Front load the sermon with good news today. Do you know that God understands your doubt? Do you ever feel like that's, an embar- that's a humiliating thing? I-, I have these doubts. I'm entertaining them. I don't want to tell anybody because let's be honest. Let's be honest. Has the church always been a safe place to doubt and ask questions? Has it? <laughs> I don't know which church you grew up in, but I can tell you just the impression and the perception, which by the way is everything. Whatever perception you give off, whatever vibe you give off, that's the truth that people believe. The vibe that I got was, just keep your head down, just suppress these thoughts, keep them to yourself. You don't want anybody to to get the wrong idea here that you're a skeptic, right? Well, did you know that God understands your doubt? And check this out. God invites you. God invites you to come and, and, and express your doubt so that he can deal with them. God understands your doubt. And he accommodates your doubts so that you don't continue to live in them, right? Just like he did Thomas the doubter. In John's gospel, the very end, Thomas said, I will not believe until I see the holes in his hands and put my finger in the wound on his side. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus shows up. And Thomas is like, oh, dang, this is it. Judgment day. That's not what Jesus said. You remember what Jesus said? He said, Thomas, come over here. See my hands. Touch my body. Put your finger in my wound. And then he said this, Thomas Stop doubting and believe. And I love that. That's a perfect picture of how God treats doubters like us. So if you came today, I hope you didn't leave your doubt at the door. I hope you brought it in with you. If you're a skeptic and afraid and embarrassed, I hope you brought that in with you because Mark is going to tackle it today in three points. So this is, a, this is point number one. How does, how does Mark deal with our doubt? Uh, point number one. Sometimes we doubt that this record, this life and times of Jesus is true. Specifically the resurrection. Because that's one of the core tenets of the Christian faith. Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He was condemned, delivered over, crucified, and died. Some people believe that up to that point. But here's the kicker. On the third day, just as he said he would, he rose from the grave. A lot of people are skeptical. No way that can happen. Human bodies do not come back to life. So three doubts that we're going to deal with, that's the, that's the first one. Maybe you're here today and you doubt this is true. Maybe you're here today and you doubt that it matters. Okay, okay, pastor, let's say that it is true. Jesus did rise from the grave. So what? What in the world kind of difference does that make for me, whether it was a resurrection or not? And then the third was, I doubt God would even want me. I doubt I'm even included in this good news. So we're going to deal with all three of those today at Grace Life. Uh, 
but you got to pay attention. You got to sit up and you got to listen, okay? Because we're, we're going to try to move fast. A few weeks ago, my 10 year old son was sick. He wasn't feeling good. Uh, but we're a church plant family. So look, everybody comes, right? But I didn't want to infect anybody in the back. So I said, look, just sit, sit down front, son, on the, on the front row and listen to your dad preach. He says, all right, dad. So I preach a sermon. We get in the car. We're driving home. And I'm like, son, what'd you think of the sermon? <laughs> By the way, don't ever ask a kid that unless you want to know the truth, right? He said, dad, it was a great sermon. It was a really good sermon. I really enjoyed it. And I was like, yeah, thanks, son. And we're driving. He said, but, but dad, <laughs> he said, it was a little long. <laughs> it was a little long, dad. I'm like, all right, buddy, thanks for being honest. And he said, and dad, he said, I think I fell asleep. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully today it won't be long and you won't fall asleep. Um, point one, I doubt it's true. Why should I believe this? Now, we've been going through Mark for two years now, but some of you are guests today. And maybe you don't know this. Mark's gospel is the go gospel. It's so fast. It's so short. There's only 16 chapters and Mark has woven, even into his gospel, this hurry up and get this out there. He doesn't spend a lot of time on the long teaching and the dialogue of Jesus. It's all about action. Jesus went and did this. And then he went and did this. And he uses a word in Greek that's translated to English immediately. He uses that word 41 times to get your attention. Like this happened, and then immediately this, and then immediately that. So Mark is always in a hurry to like shove you through the life and resurrection of Jesus. And I say all of that to say this. Mark's very selective with what he shares. Now, you already know that. If there's anything in the Bible that's important, right? If Mark shoves it into his short gospel, it's really important. And if Mark repeats it three times, dude, you better not miss it, right? Did you know that on three different occasions, when Jesus was on his way up to Jerusalem, Mark goes out of his way to record that Jesus pulled the car over, right? He pulled the disciples aside and he said, now look, the Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem, as it's been written. And he will be tortured, he will be condemned to die, he will suffer, he will be crucified, but on the third day he will rise. He said that in chapter 8, verse 34. Chapter 9, verse 31, guess what? Jesus does it again. And each time he gets more explicit with the details. They will condemn him, they will pluck his beard out. And then again in Mark chapter 10, he says the same thing and he gets even more explicit. So three different times he tells them, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. On the third day, I'm going to be risen from the grave. So Jesus said that three different times to his disciples. You say, why are you telling me that? I'm telling you that because the way that Mark writes this is it has all the makings of an authentic account. Because I want to ask you a question. I want to get inside your head today, okay? If this is fabricated, God forbid, this whole thing's fabricated, manufactured, made up. It's a legend. It's a fairy tale just to get people like you and I uh, off of Netflix on Sunday or whatever, right? If you were writing this story, would you go out of your way to say that the leader of this movement three different times told people that he was going to be killed and then he was going to rise from the grave on the third day and then nobody actually show up to believe him? Would you include that? No, you wouldn't. That would be an embarrassment, wouldn't it? You would leave that out. You, look, I'm a writer. I edit things. I fix things. I smooth things over. I want this to be like, see, Jesus said he would, he would rise on the third day. And, and look, on the third day, all his disciples showed up, like 120 people. They couldn't even fit in the garden 
outside the wall of Jerusalem because they all believed him because he had never let them down. And they were there when he walked outside the tomb and they lived happily ever after. That's not what happened though. In fact, one, one man wrote this reverently. He said, humanly speaking, probably the most disappointing day in the life of Jesus' earthly ministry was the day that he walked outside of his tomb. And, and how many people were there to greet him? None. Not one person. Not one. And Mark includes that. And so you're like, Mark's telling the truth. He's telling the truth. They were just as surprised by the resurrection as you and I were. Nobody believed him. His, just, he, his most ardent, devoted, loyal followers did not believe what he told them about him rising from the grave on the third day. They didn't believe it either. And Mark's not hiding that. And guess what? Neither is Matthew, neither is Luke, neither is John. None of them are hiding that fact. They're, te- they're giving you the goods. They're giving you the goods. They're not coloring this or doctoring this up. They're, giving, they're sharing the story with you, warts and all. Look, it's a presidential election year, and there's all these debates going on, right? Are you entertained by some of these? Both sides. I don't care what, I don't care what affiliation you are. Sometimes, to me, it's entertaining because all these guys are up there, and they're putting the best version of themselves forward. And is it always accurate? Do <laughs> You know what? They have people behind the scenes doing fact. I don't know if they had this 20, 30 years ago, but everybody's fact-checking now. Everything that a potential candidate says, they're like going back, checking their Facebook status, checking their social media, and checking them They're saying that's not true. It didn't happen that way. You actually, there were all these claims made at your business about these women who were harassed. And don't you love how Mark, man, he just puts it all out there. No lies, no embellishment, no exaggeration, not wanting to, to put the disciples in the best light possible. No. And, and for that reason, you know this is authentic. This is the real deal. And here's another reason. Here's another reason. And, and ladies, I want to apologize to you for this because in the first century, you were not treated well at all. At all. You were marginalized. Uh, your testimony, if you witnessed something important and your testimony needed to be admitted in court, it wouldn't work. Your, your testimony was considered moot and void. It didn't matter. They, didn't believe, they wouldn't believe anything that you said. That's why it's super interesting to me that again, when you read Mark's account, look at this in, in, in chapter 15, verse 40. What's the first thing that he says? Look at this. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and Joseph, and Salome. When they were in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. By the way, those verb tenses, it's uh, to geek out on you for a minute. They're in the imperfect tense, and that means they continually did this over and over. Shout out to women everywhere. Praise God for women, man. Their resolve, their courage, their faith, their boldness, their devotion to Jesus. Mark is honoring women here, but that's not all that Mark is doing. He is sharing like these women were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, to his crucifixion. Look at that. They were there, as also were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And then check this out. Uh, look at verse, look at chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Three different times here, Mark is telling us, look, women saw what happened. He gives the names of the women who saw this. They were eyewitness account. They were, they were eyewitnesses of this account. And you know what Mark is saying? We mentioned this a few weeks ago. Mark is actually saying, hey, look, if you doubt the authenticity of the resurrection, there are some women 
that you can go and talk to, they were there. They saw it. They saw the, 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 the body of Jesus when he died. They saw the resurrected body of Jesus when he came to life and when he met them in the garden. Go and talk to Mary. And he gives specifically which Mary it was. That's interesting to me because nobody... Listen, if you were fabricating this, again, and you wanted to put your best foot forward and make it the most believable report, the last thing that you would ever do is put down that women were there and they saw it. Go talk to them because nobody would believe a woman. Nobody would. In fact... Here's a verse from Luke's version. Check this out. Now it was Mary, again, same, same women, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who were told these things. Uh, the angels telling them Jesus is not here. He's risen and they see him in Luke. And, and check this out. So they go and tell the apostles and look at this. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. That's not just, well, they didn't believe the resurrection it's who's telling them about the resurrection. They're like, these crazy women, you can't believe them. They get hysterical, they get emotional, bless their heart. It's just, it's just old wives' tales. You can't believe it. Luke included that. Mark included that. And you remember when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15? 15 years after Jesus was resurrected, you remember what he said? He said, Jesus appeared to over 500 people, most of whom who are still alive to this day. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, go ask them. Go, go corroborate this story. This is a historical account. There's people, there's names, there's dates, there's colors, there's times of the day. It bears all the qualities and the characteristics of an authentic account. And here's something else that's interesting. My daughter and I were talking about this the other day at school. She's learning about, well, some people are saying there's a swoon theory, right? That Jesus wasn't really dead. Uh, you know, in fact, he died early. You read this account, it was... Pilate was surprised. Usually, the process of a crucifixion lasted for days. It was agonizing, painful. You would bleed out. You would dehydrate. You would die from exposure. You would die from asphyxiation when you couldn't breathe and push yourself up any further. That's why they had to go and break your legs to quicken the process. But when word came back that Jesus had died, Pilate was surprised, and he sent word to the centurion to come back and make sure that Jesus was dead. But my daughter was telling me about this swoon theory that, you know, Jesus wasn't really die, dead. He fainted. And then they took him and they put him in the tomb. And the coolness of that tomb, he revived himself and resuscitated. Ta-da! So it's all, it's all myth. It's all legend. Jesus didn't really die. But check this out, guys. Check the way that Mark writes this. Let me read this to you, okay? Verse 44. Pilate was surprised to hear that Jesus should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think would be an expert on death? You think maybe a centurion, a Roman centurion? Do you think he had seen death before? How many people had this guy witnessed and maybe participated in crucifying? How many? Do you think he knew a dead body when he saw one? I think he did. So you got two or three different times that there's, there's testimony and corroboration. Look, Jesus is dead. You have it from a Roman legal expert. You have it from a pilot. You have it from the witnesses, the women. You have it from Joseph of Arimathea. He meticulously, John tells us, Nicodemus joined him and they wrapped the body in linen. You know, the Jews did not have an embalming process. They just did the best they could to keep, they anointed the body with spices and with Myrrh and aloe and all this stuff so that it wouldn't stink. And so Jesus' body was dead. 
And I know a lot of people, they have doubts about that. But listen, do you know that people have survived executions in, in the past? Did you guys know that? I was reading about some of these this week. It was really interesting to me. In 1946, a guy named Willie Francis survived an attempt at execution by the electric chair. At Angola Prison, Craig. We were talking about that the other day. Uh, there was a portable electric chair known as Gruesome Gertie. And it was set up, unfortunately, it was set up by an intoxicated prison guard and an intoxicated inmate. And they didn't connect the wiring right. So it like literally electrocuted and shocked this, you know, teenage boy, 18-year-old kid, but it didn't kill him. Uh, and he survived, but one year later, they finished the job. So somebody survived an electric chair initially. Uh, there was a person named... Edwin McDonald, who survived the hanging in 1752 in England. His body was taken down. They thought he was dead. It was taken to a local dissection theater where young practitioners, hoping to be doctors, would observe uh, dissection of human bodies taking place. Sorry, guys, for the, for the graphic stuff here. So they brought this guy, and they laid him on a table. And when the dissecting surgeon came in, uh, he got the fright of his life when this guy sat up on the table. And the doctor grabbed a wooden mallet and knocked him out and killed him so that he could he finished the job for him. So somebody was somebody survived an electric chair. Somebody survived being hung. A guy uh, in 1915 named Winsaloa Mogul survived a firing squad. <laughs> Nine people were aiming at this guy's head and they all pulled the trigger, and he survived. Not only did he survive, he escaped. It's a pretty crazy story, uh, and you can go Google it. Later, not, not now, okay? If you're curious about that, he survived. And then just a few years ago, this is a really sad one, a 20-year-old in Iran who was discovered to have committed adultery was buried up to the waist in dirt and all the men in her village threw stones at her until they thought she was dead. Um, but the villagers came out, they were outraged and they drove all the stoners away and they dug her up and she survived. So why do I tell you all this? Because listen, guys, in the history of Roman crucifixion, not one story of anybody ever having survived is around. Didn't happen. Nobody survived a crucifixion. And you could go to other parts of the Gospels, John's Gospel, when they shoved a, a spear into the side of Jesus and water and blood came out separated. Dr. Yoon, I hear that that's evidence that maybe there was a, a rupture of the heart. Jesus was dead, guys. He was dead. It's corroborated over and over. The way that Mark wrote uh, this story has all the makings of an authentic report. And there's so many other things. And one of the things is this. And this, this will leave our last point with this. Mark's ending. Did you hear the very ending of this? Does it sound crazy to you? Let me read it. Chapter 16, just the last few verses here. Upon entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. The women, they were alarmed. And he said to them, by the way, this is an angel, we know. It doesn't say that here. It says a young man, but the other gospel accounts tell us it was an angel. He wore dazzling clothes. His appearance was as one of lightning. So they were freaking out a little bit, okay? And the angel said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. Why is that there? Because there's people say they were at the wrong tomb. No, they weren't. This is the right, you got the right address, ladies. This is the one. This is the tomb. And this is the right person, Jesus of Nazareth. And if that's not enough, who was crucified, right? Is that enough for you? The right tomb, the right person. He was crucified. He's dead. But check this out. 
He has risen. <laughs> He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him. Don't you love that? This angel is inviting them. Hey, come closer. Come on in. This is the right tomb, right place, right person. He was crucified. He was dead. I saw it. They wrapped his body. They put it right over there. You see that place? Grave clothes are there. He's not there, ladies. You just missed him. <laughs> but then check this out. See the place where they've laid him. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The end. Now be honest, guys. Just be honest. Is that strange? <laughs> the last word literally in Greek is phobia. Phobia. I thought this was good news. They're afraid. They're trembling. They ran away. They didn't talk to anybody. They didn't tell anybody anything. What the heck? Do you see why some copyists are like, I don't know. We got we to gotta fix this. <laughs> we got to add something to this. That's why you have verses 9 through 20, which don't even fit. The vocabulary is different in Greek. The style is different. It's almost like somebody tried to retell the last version of those few verses. You say, why are you bringing this up? Because I just love the integrity of Scripture. This is the way Mark wrote it. He didn't say, and, and, and they were faithful, and they were so happy, they were overjoyed, and they went out, and they shared the gospel in every village on the way back. No, they were freaking out. They did not expect this. They did not believe this initially. They were trembling. The words in Greek that Mark uses to describe this are amazing. There's like no equivalent in English. Astonishment, distress, it doesn't quite capture. They had just seen an angel, so they're flipping out about that. They thought, I mean, for all intents and purposes, guys, look. These women went to that tomb on Sunday morning to anoint a dead corpse. Okay? Can I just say it like that? And Mark tells you that. They weren't there because they believed the resurrection. They were there because they thought it was over. And they're like, shockwaves are going through their mind. They're still trying to wrap their mind rationally around what happened. And Mark doesn't clean that up for you. He leaves it exactly the way it happened. And I love that, man. That, this is, I can see myself being in the shoes of the, or the sandals of those women and doing the same thing they did. I'd be flipping out. I'd be shaking. I'd be trembling with excitement. I'd probably need a porta potty. You know what I mean? And Mark leaves it that way because that's the way it happened. That's the way it happened. The women were witnesses. But women's testimony is, I don't care. They were there. Go talk to them. <laughs> that's point one. Uh, just in case you doubt this, that this really happened, man, the way Mark has written this, it's authentic. It's legit. Not a legend. This is not far away in a galaxy somewhere. It's not in a hole in the ground in Middle Earth. Not once upon a time. This is not a fairy tale. This is legit, straight up history. Corroborated, eyewitnesses, legal, secular experts, testimony that Jesus was dead and that he's not in the grave. So there, there's that. Point number two, okay? <clears throat> Point number two. I doubt it matters, you may say. Maybe you're here and you're like, okay, okay, enough. Please, move on. You said it would be a short sermon. I didn't say that technically. I said you, you want it to be, right? So you say, okay, I grant it that, that the resurrection happened, but I doubt it matters to me. I doubt it matters to me. I think a lot of people in Christianity believe that. I really do. And I, and I got to be honest and confess to you today, I did for many years. And here's why, guys. Because to me, resurrection meant heaven. And you're like, so? Well, just bear with me. I grew up in the Bible Belt. And whenever heaven was mentioned, 
the image that was in my mind, maybe it's the same image that's in your mind, was, uh, in fact, I think I, I no, I don't, I don't think I did. The image that was in my mind would be clouds and fat angels, like on a Hallmark card, right? Yeah, that's it. If you Google, <clears throat> excuse me, if you Google heaven, at least on my internet connection, that's the first image that pops up. Now, I'm not blaming Google. They don't know any better. But I'm saying, will somebody please go and Google and fix heaven? <laughs> the first image I had of a resurrection is, oh, it's this ethereal, wispy existence on clouds, and it's an eternal sing-along in the sky, and, 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 and we're all wearing robes and playing harps or guitars or whatever they play. That's what I thought heaven was like. And I've got to be honest, guys, could not get excited about it. Just be, I'm being straight up honest with you as a Christian and a pastor. I could not, developing an appetite for that, to me, as a teenager, or as a young kid, was like developing an appetite for gravel. I just, I could not get excited about it. But listen, check this out. What is Mark telling us about this resurrection? Resurrection includes a physical body being restored. Did you know that? You know, Jesus, the, the women could have came to the tomb, and the angel could have kept it sealed and said, look, you don't want to go in there, it's pretty disgusting. But Jesus is alive, and he is in paradise. Just like he told the thief on the cross, and uh, you just missed him, his spirit is up there, and, and he's going to be glorified soon, and everybody can go with disembodied spirits, and we can all join him one day. That's not what happened, though, guys. Jesus had a body, a resurrected body, that bore the scars and the wounds that he had. And what does that tell us? That God cares about his physical creation. And that sin is not going to have the last word. Sin is not going to have the last word. Growing up in church, I always heard uh, the history of the biblical redemption like this. There's creation, there's fall, and there's redemption. And that was it. Creation, fall, redemption. Which means I can have personal forgiveness and I can go to heaven when I die. When I moved to Florida and then when I went to seminary, I found that somebody had been leaving out a really important part of biblical redemption. You know what it is? Creation, fall, what's the last one? Restoration. Restoration, baby. God's going to restore all of this. Sin is not going to have the last word. This planet belongs to God. When Jesus created the heavens and the earth, he looked at everything he had made, and what did he say? It's okay. <laughs> is that what he said? He said it's good. The plants, the animals, the stars, the moon, the heavenly bodies... The zebras, the lions, the people, the oceans, it's all good. And God's going to redeem it one day. And so you know what? I, I want to challenge you. Because Jesus was resurrected and he had a body, maybe when we think about heaven, we don't need to think of the, of the stairway up into the clouds. Maybe we need to think about a restored planet. Because listen, do you know the description that the minor prophets gave and that the apostle John gives? You know what he says? He says that one day... The lion will lay down with the lamb. Have you ever seen that happen? Anybody ever seen that happen? <laughs> it wouldn't, that wouldn't go down very well, even at the zoo, right? He says, behold, the child will play at the opening of the den of the cobra and will not be harmed. How about that? Is that what you envision? Jesus said in, in, in Revelation chapter 20 and chapter 21, describing the new heavens and the new earth, he said this. He said, behold... I make all things new. He didn't say some things. He didn't say spiritual things. He said, behold, I make all things new. That means that Jesus is going to restore this planet. 
And maybe we need to be thinking about that when we think about heaven. There's a new Jerusalem. There's a new city. You know, we, we, we think, have you ever seen artwork of, of the Garden of Eden and been like, man, that would be so cool. That would be so awesome to live in Eden. Eden ain't got nothing on the new heavens and the new earth. I wish somebody would do some really good art about what the new... I looked on Google. I spent like 30 minutes looking for this for y'all. I couldn't find anything. I'm embarrassed to tell you. Some good Christians that understand eschatology need to do better artwork on the new heavens and the new earth. Because it's going to be rad. What is going to happen? Seriously. Um, so does this matter to you? Well, I don't know. Do you... Anybody in here suffer chronic pain? Anybody? <laughs> Two of you are, are honest. <laughs> Hey, I just turned 45 this month, and I got to tell you, man, I thought I, thought I was going to feel like I was in my 20s forever. Oh, my goodness, man. I cannot even get out of bed without, seriously, I have to go see a chiropractor. I have that plenty of fasciitis thing in my feet. It's, I can't even run two miles anymore without crying almost. And I, you know what? I'm ready for my new body. This cloud thing and heaven thing, that'd be, that'd be good, you know, but I want a new body. I want a new planet. Uh, it's going to be amazing, all the things that we're told that God's going to restore. You know, one of, the, one of the ladies that I love reading, her name is Johnny Erickson Tata. And when she was 17, she grew up in California. She loved hiking, riding horses, swimming. When she was 17, she was diving in uh, to the ocean on a suspended raft, and she hit bottom, and her neck broke. Uh, it's a fascinating story, the way it all happened. And she was instantly a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck and shoulders down. Um, and since that happened, she has written over, I don't know how many books, probably over 100 books. And one of my favorite books that she's written is about heaven. But before I get to what she said, don't read it yet, okay? I want, I want to ask you a question. I want to, thank you, thank you. They got, they got my back. I want to ask you a question. What good news would you have for Johnny Erickson Tata? She's a 17-year-old. She was a Christian, and she was honest and said, I was very bitter and angry at God for allowing this to happen to me at a young age. What's my life going to be like now? She was even depressed and suicidal at times. What good news does Christianity have for Johnny Erickson Tata? Is it just, I don't, guys, I speak as a man, okay? Is it just, well, Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and he rose from the grave, so we know that God accepted his sacrifice, and so you can be forgiven of all your sins. Man, that's, a, that's the best news in the world, right? Is that the only news that Christianity has for her? Is it? Creation, fall, redemption. You just gave her redemption and you stopped short. You, if that's the only news you gave her, and you're like, well, well honey, you got a beautiful smile, just grin and bear it, and just, you know, just hang in there. Christianity has some amazing news to share with her, doesn't it? You're not going to be in that wheelchair forever. Here, you can pull it up now. We can read it. In her book on heaven, she wrote, Somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that the resurrection gives someone who is spinal cord injured like me? Yeah, that's good news to her, along with she can be forgiven of her sins. But if you just tell her, hey, look, one of these days, you're not even going to need a body. Don't worry about it. We'll be disembodied spirits floating around in heaven playing a harp. That ain't good news to her. No, she's going to have a new body. And she wrote in that book, one of the first things she's going to do with her new legs is fall down on her knees and thank Jesus for what he did for her. You can contrast that with Stephen Hawking. Both of the, She was in a wheelchair. She's been in a wheelchair for, for over 50 years. And Stephen Hawking 
has been in a wheelchair for over 50 years and he died a couple of years ago. And you can read, you can read the quote that he said. He doesn't believe in God. He thinks Christianity is a fairy tale. And basically he has no hope of any existence after his brain is dead and goes to the grave. That's such a hopeless this is just a hopeless way to live your life and to think, isn't it? We're, listen, guys, we're surrounded by death. We're surrounded by decay. There were some turkey vultures in our backyard in the HOA property the other day. They were tearing up an animal. I, I went to look at it because my, my sons told me it was an otter. It was so decayed and decomposed and ripped to pieces, I couldn't even tell what it was. Is it an otter? Is it a raccoon? Is it a possum? It's just everywhere you go, you're surrounded by the effects of the fall. Broken relationships, broken bodies, broken minds. I think it was uh, Bob Dylan, he wrote about this. He said, broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts, Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. God is going to fix everything, guys. Everything. Everything physical. Everything material. You know, there was a, a heresy floating around when the New Testament was written. And it, they got it from Greek Gnosticism and, and Greek philosophy. And it said this. The goal in life is to escape the prison of your physical body. Because all physical matter, all material matter is bad and evil. And all spiritual matter is good. That's a lie. That's a lie. The resurrection is proof not only of a new beginning, but of God's desire and love for beauty. God's going to give you and I, if you trust in the sacrifice of His Son, He's going to give you and I a new body. We're going to enjoy a new planet. We are going to, look, it's human flourishing. Complete and total shalom. Peace, healing, harmony. We're going to relate the right way to God. We're going to relate the right way to one another. We're going to relate the right way to nature. Animals aren't going to attack us and bite us, right? Tsunamis and volcanoes and tidal waves and wildfires, those are going to go bye-bye forever. And this planet is going to operate the way that God always intended for it to operate. That's what the new heavens and the new earth are going to look like. Eden ain't got nothing <laughs> on what God is going to do because of Christ and the fact that Jesus was given a resurrected and glorified body is proof of that. It's proof of that. God loves, God loves his creation and he's going to fix it. Anthony Hochmau wrote this. <clears throat> he said, resurrected bodies are not intended just to float in space or to flit from cloud to cloud. They call for a new earth on which to live and to work glorifying God. The doctrine of the resurrection of the body, in fact, makes no sense whatsoever apart from the doctrine of the new earth. I wonder how many people would be honest enough. I just want to know if this is resonating with you. How many people in here have ever thought, man, it's going to be great when Jesus comes back, but I would really like to do this first. Be honest. Give God glory. How many people have thought that before? I have too, and you know why? Because nobody told me this. <laughs> Whatever it is that you're filling that blank in with, man, it would be so awesome to experience this before Jesus comes back. I can promise you, friends, whatever this is in your blank, it it's a shadow of the reality of what Jesus returning and establishing his kingdom is going to be like. 
I don't care what it is. What relational intimacy, I don't care what it is that you think would be better to experience first before Jesus comes, it can't hold a candle. And I think Satan, the Bible says that Satan blasphemes the dwelling place of God. I think there's a lot of lies about what heaven is really going to be like so that we can't develop an appetite for it. We can't look forward to it. We're like, all we got is right here and right now. That is a lie. God's going to make all things new, everything new, everything. And I think also some of the some of the contention we've had with environmentalism, especially far-leaning conservative evangelicals, we feel like, man, if we, if we say that, that the planet's going to be renewed and restored, are we an environmentalist? <laughs> Guys, no, you're not. God said it was all good, and then sin broke it, and God's going to restore it and fix it, and we're going to be able to enjoy it. That's not being liberal. That's being biblical. That's being a, a sound Christian. So... That's point number two. R.C. Sproul once said that we are not human beings. We are human becomings. (laughs) And every time you see a movie or read a book, listen, anytime anything ever comes back from the grave, from Hollywood, it's more dead than it was, right? It's either a zombie or some kind of apocalyptic walking dead or Stephen King pet cemetery. Something's just off about it, right? So we can't really wrap our mind around what would it be like for God to fix our broken bodies, I was telling somebody this the other day. Can you imagine trying to explain to Alexander Graham Bell, who invented the telephone, can you imagine explaining to him an iPhone 12 XR? Can you imagine trying to tell him, like, Alex, dude, you can take a picture with this. He says, a what? You're like, never mind. You can do a bunch of stuff with this. You can capture what's, you can capture reality. You can check your email. He goes, you're what? It, he, it wouldn't register. Or imagine Henry Ford trying to tell him about the 2021 Ford Lexus Coupe that has command-activated automatic parallel parking and leather seats that are heated. I mean, it wouldn't compute, right? So there's an entire chapter in the Bible devoted to what your newly resurrected body is going to be like. I wonder if you've ever read it. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Imperishable, incorruptible. Our bodies are going to be... I can't wait, man. I cannot wait to see what kind of body I'm going to have. And I mean that in the right way. You know what I mean? It's going to be cool. Yeah, I mean, the way we're going to relate to, to this planet without sin, without pain. Jesus says, I will wipe away every tear from their eye. Oh, we're going to have eyes? Yes. We're not going to have any more pain, no more chronic sickness, no more flu, no more coronavirus, right? 80,000 cases. Does that, does that scare you? Does that worry you? Well, friends, cling to the resurrection. We're not going to have any coronaviruses in the future. It's not going to matter. Sorry, I'm getting all preachy up here. But that's important. That's exciting to me. And I think Christianity sometimes withholds that information from people. I can't wait to see what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. Well, um, last point. This is a fast one. Maybe you say, okay, okay, great. I see that a resurrection would matter. I see that it's true. I believe that it really happened. But seriously, pastor, you don't know me. There's no way God would ever let somebody like me get in on this. I'm worthless. I'm a sinner. Well, I got good news for you. (laughs) I got some good news for you. Check this out. Check this out. Verse 7 of chapter 15. When this angel tells these ladies, Jesus is not here. You just missed him. You got the right address, but you're late. He's not here. He rose from the grave just like he said he would. And you didn't believe him. Now, you know what the angel could have said next? You ought to be ashamed of yourself, all of you. You're unworthy to be followers of Jesus. 
He doesn't want you. He'll start over with somebody else that actually has faith. He didn't say that. Look what he says, verse 7. He is risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter. And Peter, that he is going before you Galilee. You ever wonder why that's there? Why is the and Peter? Well, it's because Peter's the leader of the disciples, right? No. If that would have been the case, he would have said, go tell Peter and the disciples. He didn't say that. He said, go tell the disciples and you tell Peter who denied me three times. Mark's gospel is very explicit. We, we, I preached about this a few weeks ago. I believe Peter actually cursed Jesus to prove to the people that were about to hang him up <laughs> that he wasn't a follower. It says he, he denied Jesus with cursing. A better translation is Peter denied Jesus by cursing. <laughs> Peter cursed the existence of Jesus and said, I don't know him, I'm not a disciple. But you know what, you know what this account is telling us? Jesus still wanted Peter. Have you, have you guys ever cursed Jesus? You don't, have to be, you don't have to raise your hand. What's the worst thing in your mind you think you have ever done? Deny Jesus? Have you ever killed a Christian? The Apostle Paul did. Have you ever killed Jesus? You know that centurion in the last chapter? that said, truly, this man is the Son of God. He confessed Jesus as Lord. He's in the kingdom. Anybody can get in on this. Anybody can get in on this. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your past is. That does not bar you from the benefits and the privileges and the freedom and the forgiveness of the gospel, nor does it bar you from enjoying the promises that we have of a newly restored planet, a new heaven, a new earth, and a new body. Anybody can get anybody can get in on this. What's, what's the barrier to getting in on this? It's belief. Do you believe this? Do you believe in your heart that Jesus was Lord? And do you believe that God rose him from the grave? Then you can get in on this. The Bible says repent. That means to turn. It's a term, metanoia. It means do a 180. Stop thinking the way you're thinking. Stop living the way you're living. Trust Christ. Believe the gospel. Turn away from your sin and cling to Jesus. And the Bible says these saving benefits belong to you. They belong to you. I could actually change the way I did this outline. It could actually, it could actually be like this. It could be, why should I believe this? Because it's true. Because Mark shows us it's true. Why should I care? Because we live in physical bodies. We live in a physical planet. And we see the effects of sin. And don't we long for that to be restored? Yes, we do. And the last one is, how can I get in on this? Does God really want me? Yes, He does, friends. He wants you. He loves you. He died for you. There's no sin that's too heinous. There's no act, there's no thought that's so corrupt or so disgusting or so polluted that the, the death of Christ can't cover you and the blood of, dry, of Christ can't cleanse you. That's a lie. Don't believe that. You don't believe that for a minute. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the promises we have of the resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that very often we're like these women that came to the tomb. Lord, we are bewildered and we're amazed and we're alarmed and we're distressed. And God, that just bears testimony to the authenticity of this account. Lord, you didn't cover up any of the bizarre details. You told it exactly like it was. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody here today, maybe they are feeling the effects of sin and the fall. They're feeling it in their body. There's chronic weakness and sickness. 
there's pain, maybe they haven't even, can't even explain to somebody weakness or maybe uh, a diagnosis from a friend that has cancer. Lord, there's all, everywhere we turn, we see bad news that this is a fallen planet, that we live in fallen bodies. We live in fallen relationships and we need good news, Lord. And, and without your Holy Spirit coming and illuminating our mind and our heart, we won't believe it. It's too good to be true. Lord, I pray nobody, nobody would leave this building today without that good news sinking deep, the gospel penny dropping in their heart, seeing that you are a God who, who loves them, who went all the way to the cross, who bore their shame, who bore their sin. And the Bible says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is first fruits. That means there are more to come. We're going to enjoy a resurrected body as well if we trust in Christ and if we believe the gospel. And if there's anybody here today, Lord, and maybe they don't believe they're worthy of that. They're right. They're not. Nobody is. Nobody is worthy to be forgiven of their sins. But Lord, you died for people like that. So I pray that you would drive that truth home into our hearts. And if there's anybody here today they would cry out in faith they would ask you to cleanse them from their sin they would turn they would turn from their wicked thoughts lord and their sinful ways and they would ask for you to cleanse them and forgive them i pray all these things in christ's name